McGonigal is a health psychologist and author and teacher at Stanford University. Oh, and her TED Talk has over 21 million views. Her best-selling books are based on classes at Stanford, all backed by research. Her book, The Willpower Instinct, was based on her popular psychology course, The Science of Willpower, and the upside of stress began as Living Well with Stress. Her latest book and the topic of today's podcast explores how physical exercise can be a powerful antidote to the modern epidemics of depression, anxiety, and loneliness. The book is called The Joy of Movement, and it's out New Year's Eve. I was lucky enough to get a sneak peek into this inspirational read. Kelly is also a phenomenal speaker. Recently, we both spoke up at a VC conference at Skywalker Ranch, which is a story for another day. But I had the pleasure of sitting in her lecture and left the presentation absolutely pumped to hit the gym. Not only is Kelly totally relatable, but I found the science she shared in this book and in her talk to be incredibly motivational. So if you are in a workout rut, this podcast and her new book is sure to be the perfect tool to help you get moving. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Kelly McGonigal to the show. Thank you for having me. And I totally forgot that that was how we met because I'm following you on Instagram. And um, that event was... It was wonderful. But you know what the highlight was for me? was when I asked um, you know, all those CEOs and venture capitalists to volunteer to come up on stage. They didn't know what they were volunteering for. And I had them move in different ways. To, to do like the battle rope movement. And then they did that ballet port de bras. That was my favorite. Those <laughs> men, and they, you know, I just had them do the, the, the ballet port de bras and how do you feel? And those men were like, beautiful. <laughs> and that, it was just proof positive that movement has these different qualities that are inherent to the movement themselves. And when you move in those ways, you get to access those parts of yourself, whether you want to feel fierce and powerful or fast and free, or beautiful and elegant. Yeah, that, yeah, that was it, a trip, that event. It was a trip. And you know what? When I was sitting in the audience, I was thinking, you know, she's absolutely right because I've been in boxing classes where I feel like an absolute badass. And I've been in yoga classes where I'm like feeling just sort of graceful, which it's crazy how that yeah. all works. And it's, this is a gift that movement gives us. And it, it almost doesn't matter what we look like while we're doing it. It's that we set that intention and our body literally gives us the signal that we literally sense our own strength or sense our own power. So how would you have someone use that if like use exercise to prepare themselves for something? Oh, yes. I do this all the time. So when I have to do something that I am uh, afraid of doing, which is a lot of things in life, given my anxious temperament, um, I often will do kickboxing because it feels so powerful to throw punches and land kicks. And we also know from the research that when you activate your deep core muscles, which you can do in bar or Pilates or yoga or kickboxing you know, or powerlifting, um, but any form of movement where you activate the deep core, we know that those core muscles send signals to the parts of your brain that regulate anxiety and literally tell your brain, we've got this. We're in control. Um, you can relax now. And um, so I often will do something that requires that that activation of my deep core muscles, because I know that no matter what's going on in my mind, my body will, will give me that extra dose of courage that says, you've got this, you can rise to the challenge. So you know, I often tell people, well, there are a couple of ways to use this. One is to figure it out, you know, do it as an experiment. Different forms of movement, if you're already somebody who loves different forms of exercise, 
to take note of how you feel when you are doing the movement and afterward. And even like to name it with a word. You could literally write it down or, you know, snap a selfie of yourself and post it with the with how you feel in that moment when you just finished your run or you, you know, you just did your push-ups. And then the next time you need to to feel that version of yourself, to know that you don't even have to do a whole workout. You know, you could literally do one plank pose or one yoga pose, do a warrior pose, and you can catch a sense of that because you've literally trained for it. Um, but the other thing I often tell people, I mean, you know, it's New Year's, new you, all of that. Maybe you want to try a new form of movement that allows you to access a part of yourself that has been in hibernation. You know, maybe you want to find a movement form that makes you feel sexy or that makes you feel playful or that taps into your competitive edge. And that that can be a fun way to think about choosing movement in the new year rather than thinking, what's the, you know, the one form of exercise that's going to absolutely burn the most calories? To think, what's the movement form that's going to allow me to express a part of myself that I really want to bring to the forefront of who I am this year? I love that so much. I, well, I love working out, but I, I do have specific workouts that I tend to to go like lean on the most yoga being one of them, because I just feel like with the busy nature of my life and my career and being a new mom, it slows me down, but they play really awesome music. Like I'll be, I'll be flowing to Beyonce and then an old Britney Spears song will come on. And I feel so motivated to work even harder and to hold my planks longer. And, but it feels fun to me. And I feel, I feel like I'm accessing my childhood a little bit. Yes. Okay. I'm so happy you're saying all of this. And I want to hear more about how you use movement. But I just want to jump in and say, I wrote a whole chapter in the book about the power of music because I feel like it's such an underappreciated aspect of the psychology of exercise. And I have a playlist for everything. And it is absolutely the case. You know, The science shows that, that music allows us to do things that are harder than we could do without the right power playlist for us. It um, increases the endorphins that we get when we do any form of movement. It helps us go faster. It helps us persist longer. And like you said, it, it is such a powerful source of memories and meaning that it can literally change the meaning of the movement that you're doing. You know, if you're listening, you said Beyonce, you're listening to Beyonce talk about how, uh, you know, how fabulous she is, which is really how fabulous you are, <laughs> while you're holding a, a strong yoga pose. That that combination, it just amplifies what's already available in your body and in that pose itself. So, but tell me more. So, yoga is one of your go tos. Well, yeah. So, I grew up playing, I grew up, I don't want to like miss the, all of the information I want to share from your book, but yes, I grew up playing soccer. So, I was running after a soccer ball on it, working with a team. A lot of the girls who I played soccer with growing up were bridesmaids in my wedding, and we've been friends since fifth grade. And so that I, I really loved that sport growing up. I definitely felt the runners high at practices at late night on the soccer field and in my games on the weekends. And then in college, my some of the classes that I took were step up aerobics and yes. dance. <laughs> and then um, sort of became a gym junkie and was on the reformer and then and then found myself my roommate in college was a dancer growing up and she convinced me to go to yoga and it took us three classes 
in LA to find a place where I was willing to go. The first two um, studios, one was really quiet music, bolsters, sort of restorative. The second one was quiet. And we were holding the poses really a really long time. And I, I didn't feel very flexible in my body. And then the third one was the studio here in Brentwood in Los Angeles. Unfortunately, it's turned over to a new studio. But there are a lot of studios that have this type of vinyasa flow with fun music. And I remember walking into the class. It was it's Maha, it used to be Maha Yoga here in LA. And it felt like I was in a New York dance studio. Everyone was mat to mat. Everyone was talking. They were loud. They were hugging each other and saying hi. And then the song, like the class would always start with one of those like really upbeat songs that everyone loved. And you'd flow for 90 minutes and the place was a sweaty mess, <laughs> like steamy. And then I'd leave happy for days. Okay. Can we talk about some of the science behind that experience? Because I... I love it. And I really want to celebrate the way that you're describing your yoga experience. I recently did an interview about yoga where there was, there was this assumption that the true best yoga is the yoga you do at home that is very serious, certainly without music. And that, that somehow going to a yoga studio to practice with other people was cheating, that it wasn't as good as some personal private practice. Oh, and I'm over I, that. You know, so I, I know. I taught, um, I taught flow yoga to um, very carefully cultivated playlists for years. That was always my favorite form of yoga as well. And um, what you're describing, psychologists call collective joy, which is a very specific euphoria that humans feel when we move in synchrony with other people. And, and dance is probably how it, it sort of first got started in our human experience, as well as maybe collective labor, like working together to support ourselves as a species. But um, yoga is one of the easiest ways to find it now in our modern society, because in a flow yoga class, not only are we moving together, physically moving the bodies, but there's an audible breath that you can hear as we move and breathe together. And, uh, And then the music provides often a beat that we're also moving to and with. And that joy it's such an endorphin rush. And in fact, the studies show that when you move in synchrony with other people and you move to music, both of those dramatically increase the endorphins and the dopamine rush that we get from exercise. So of course, you're going to leave feeling fantastic. And we also know that it builds social bonds and a sense of belonging. I know that when I, when I went to graduate school and I left all of my friends and family behind on one coast and I arrived at California... It was a group yoga class that was the first place I felt like I actually belonged, even though it wasn't deep friendships yet. But just feeling like that sense that my body has a home because here's a place where I'm moving and breathing with other people. And we know that true friendships can form. And you mentioned sweat. So this is one of the little scientific nuggets I discovered researching this book that I just love so much. That happy sweat has like a signature smell it smells different than any other kind of sweat. You, you can't necessarily tell it consciously. But you know, if you have people smell towels that are soaked in the sweat of someone who's really happy when they were sweating versus other emotions, people really enjoy the, the happy sweat smell more than other sweat smells. And it's culturally universal. Researchers have gone to other countries and been like, smell the sweat. And then like collecting sweat samples um, from other cultures. And it seems like whatever it is we when we're happy and we're sweating. It's universal. And I just love that idea that you're in a place like a hot yoga class or flow yoga class or any group workout. 
And if you're doing it in a place where the music is pumping and you're enjoying yourself and you are feeling good, you are literally producing happy sweat and you are inhaling the happy sweat of others. And it's, it's, I mean, it's what could be better than that? It's funny that you say that because my husband and I have this thing when we have to give a presentation, we know that our smell, our sweat smells worse. We call it fear sweat. Yeah, that's so, actually true too. Yes, the science does support that. By the way, it's one of the reasons why if I'm feeling anxious before I give a talk or something like that, I will dance to a, a song that I love. I figure if I'm going to be sweating, it might as well be happy sweat. So anyone close enough to smell me can sort of catch my enthusiasm. I love it. And I love the, the, the theme of your book seems to really highlight how... I mean, how working out is sort of the antidote for everything. I felt like I was reading and it was like, are you depressed? Work out. Are you anxious? Work out. You feel are you you lonely? Feel connected? Work out. Yes. Work out. I feel like I'm always pretty glass half full, uh, sort of set that way. But there are definitely times where I've felt stressed or anxious or a little depressed. And, you know, I would, I really want to start using working out as a way to, as the antidote for it. Yes. So there are two ways... To, well, there are probably a thousand ways to think about this, but let, let's talk about two. One is the immediate effect that movement has on our mood and our mindset. Um, psychologists call this the feel-better effect, which is the fact that if you go from being sedentary, you haven't moved in a while, and you move to any degree, any dose, any type, there really is no minimum threshold. If you are moving your body a couple of minutes, any way at all, most people report immediately feeling more hopeful, more optimistic, more energized, and happier. And it doesn't matter sort of where you start out, anxious, angry, bored, sad, calm, that people tend to move in the direction of having more energy and their mood being more positive. Um, so that's like the, that's the easiest effect to exploit. Because if there's any movement that you can physically do with the body that you have now in the environment that you're in, you can almost guarantee that whatever you are able to do is going to make you feel better. And I often will tell people to just pick a song because we know music is so powerful. Pick a song and do something. Go for a walk, do some stretches, dance around, do some push-ups, whatever, whatever inspires you. And we could talk so much more about the specific ways that movement can enhance your mood immediately. I want to make sure we talk about the runner's high at some point. But since you use that word resilient, I want to highlight this other side of how movement is such powerful medicine for us, which is how being active in the long term changes the structure and the function of your brain. And there are two main ways, two main effects that, um, that you see when people who are not really active become more active. And you usually see this change happen on the, on the course of like six weeks to a couple of months. You see really major changes happening in the brain. The first is that the brain becomes more sensitive to joy, more responsive to pleasures. That being regularly active fine-tunes the reward system of the brain to make good food taste better, sunsets more beautiful, a hug from a friend feel better. Whatever it is that, that just brings you ordinary joy and pleasure in life, the brain gets better at responding to that. And this is one of the reasons why exercise seems to be such a, a powerful antidepressant if you look, this is around the world. Studies and interventions have been done in so many different countries and cultures that when you either add exercise to antidepressant medication or therapy, or you just randomly assign people who are not yet being treated 
to exercise or another form of treatment, that exercise is incredibly effective as an antidepressant, including for people who are severely depressed. And it's also why exercise seems to be so important for people who are recovering from substance abuse or addiction, because with both addiction and depression, as well as grief, one of the main things you see is that the reward system of the brain becomes less responsive. So it's harder to enjoy anything. It's harder to feel motivated about life. It can be literally hard to get out of bed in the morning, in part because the brain is not telling you, take a step, something good could happen. And so exercise seems to reverse that. So that's one way that exercise makes you more resilient and increases happiness. But the other is that exercise also changes the systems of the brain that make you resilient to stress and to trauma. And uh, again, over the course of weeks and months, you see the brain becoming literally more resilient, better able to help you handle stressful situations, better able to help recover even from past trauma or loss. And you, you get a brain that's basically better able to handle difficult things without falling into despair. Gosh, I'll, I'll pause for a moment because I could talk for hours about this, but I, I think that to understand that who you are once you've been active for a while, that your brain is both more sensitive to joy and better protected against stress. There is nothing else I've seen in the literature, and I've been looking for two decades for things that people can choose to do that produce psychological well being. And I've never found anything that has the same effect as physical movement. So, on a biochemical level, what's, what's happening in the brain? Is it receptor sensitivity? Is it more of specific chemicals? Like, yeah. So when it comes to the reward, it's so for so many different effects, but let's talk about just a couple. I also, I often feel like even if people don't really understand what we're saying, sometimes there's a feeling to hearing the language. So even if you know, you're listening and you're not really that into the neuroscience, I do hope that there's like a sense of awe and wonder that I can communicate because of just how fascinating it is that we have brains that are able to respond in a way that serves our happiness based just on being willing you know, to go for a walk or to go to the gym. So one thing you see is that you, you get an increase in both tonic and phasic levels of dopamine. So dopamine is a neurotransmitter that often produces a sense that something good is going to happen that makes us optimistic and hopeful and that makes us um, want to engage in life. So you see an increase both in the tonic levels, that's sort of your baseline state. Like when you wake up in the morning, does it feel like, hey, there's a reason to get out of bed? But the phasic dopamine burst, that's the, that burst of joy you get when, let's say, you, you do get out of bed and your dog comes running at you and your dog starts giving you kisses and your brain is like, wow, I love my dog. You get an extra big burst of dopamine. So physical activity seems to increase both of those. So your baseline is, is just you know, essentially more optimistic and engaged. And also the little things that make you happy lead to a bigger burst of happiness. I mean, who doesn't want that? I know. But you also see an increase in um, receptor availability, which is one of the sort of the key hallmarks that that you see decline in things like depression and um, addiction and also in aging. So as people age every decade, they lose a certain number of dopamine receptors and uh, and dopamine neurons that produce the dopamine and also um, receive the dopamine to give you that that feel-good sensation. And uh, regular exercise seems to increase the, the biochemical availability of receptors. It's like, that's when I say that it makes you be more receptive to joy, that's what I'm talking about. Like, literally have receptors in your brain that are waiting for dopamine. 
and they become more available. It's like if you could imagine, like you think about available body language. If you were to, you wanted to give someone a hug and their arms were crossed, you couldn't give them a hug. Mm-hmm. So when I say that uh, your dopamine receptor is more available, it's like your dopamine receptor is opening their arms wide and being like, give me that dopamine hug. I'm ready for it. Okay. So a couple follow-up questions to that. Can you ever increase the number of dopamine receptors you have in the brain? You know, that's an interesting question. So I <laughs> let's not get too much into that. I spent so much time trying to figure out the correct language for this. Almost all of the, the studies that I can find looking at both human research and animal research, they really stick to this uh, language of availability rather than quantity. Although sometimes you will hear language that seems to be implying quantity. So I'm going to stick with availability in part because uh, if you look at the literature, that's what you're going to see most often referred to. I mean, I love that I can increase my baseline level of dopamine and increase the burst of happy dopamine that happened throughout the day by just working out. I think it's that's reason enough for me to get my butt out of bed and hit the gym or my yoga mat. So I'm, I think we've covered enough to get people excited about it. <laughs> so don't worry. Uh, we don't need can to we, can we talk about though the resilience? So that's, so that's making your brain more responsive to joy. But talking about making the brain more resilient to stress, you know, one of the most fascinating findings that made me love my body. I mean, so the brain is amazing. But the, the idea that made me love my muscles is something called hope molecules. And this is something that we've only learned in the past decade or so about how the human body works, which is that your muscles are basically an endocrine organ. Like they don't, so normally you think muscles, okay, attached to bones, they move bones, they contract so that I can lift things and push things and walk. But as it turns out, muscles are, have this whole other job that they are manufacturing chemicals and proteins. And when you contract your muscles through movement, it's a signal to the muscles to push out into the bloodstream dozens of different chemicals and proteins that support our physical and our mental health. And, and when you exercise regularly, you have a completely different biochemistry, you know, what's going on in your bloodstream, because your muscles are pumping out all of these molecules that reduce inflammation, that boost your immune system, that can help kill cancer cells, that can regulate your metabolism. These are phenomenally health-enhancing molecules. And some of the molecules that your muscles release during exercise, they go through the bloodstream, they cross the blood-brain barrier, and their primary effect in the brain is to function as an antidepressant that strengthens the systems of your brain that make you resilient to stress and trauma. And uh, one of the first papers that I came across that was describing this called those molecules hope molecules because they were sort of like I was infatuated with this idea that your muscles are manufacturing basically antidepressants and that when you exercise, you're giving yourself an intravenous dose of hope. Like this to me, do not think that that is amazing. I mean, it's just so... I think one of the most powerful things that we've that we've discovered in science in the last ten years, and these chemicals are called myokines. Yes, and I I like to focus on the effects on the brain because I'm a psychologist. So you know, at the end of the day, I'm always interested in depression and happiness and social connection and all of that. But you know, as you point out, these molecules that are being produced during exercise have profound effects on your physical health as well. And again, it's one of the reasons why when as a health psychologist, when people ask me if there's one thing I should do that's going to be good for my health, 
I mean, there's so many things you could do, but there's just nothing that operates at the same level as exercise. I love it. And honestly, it's making me want to get in my phone and like book my workout. (laughs) But I do have a question because I'm not doing... You talk a lot about in the book about, you know, the runner's high. And you say that different forms of exercise mimic different mind-altering drugs, including ecstasy (laughs) and even LSD, which made me really excited, but also made me think that I should be running more instead of doing yoga. <laughs> but can Okay, you- well, yeah. So let's get into this a little bit. Um, first okay. of all, the runner's high, I call it a persistence high because you don't have to run to get it. Okay. And you know, God bless runners. My husband is one and my identical twin sister is also a very enthusiastic runner, but I am not. I like to dance, I like to punch, and I like to do yoga. Those are my main activities. And you can get a runner's high from all of those. You can get a runner's high from any activity that requires you to get and keep your heart rate up at a moderate level for at least 20 minutes. That's what the science suggests. And I'm so glad you came back to the runner's high because as you said, lots of different activities seem to affect the brain. So they all affect the brain in certain ways. So basically, anytime you move, you're going to get a boost of adrenaline and dopamine. And that is the the basis of the feel better effect. Dopamine makes you feel more optimistic and hopeful. The adrenaline gives you more energy. That's like anything that you do is going to give you that. And then based on other aspects of your your movement experience, you can get uh, other neurotransmitters like endorphins and oxytocin and endocannabinoids. And we'll talk a little bit about the form of movement that's most like LSD or ayahuasca or other Mm -hmm. entheogens, which is not necessarily running. Okay. So the runner's high or the persistence high, that, that particular feeling that people get Often it's a sense of being in flow. Anxiety starts to disappear. You just feel better about yourself and about life. That is driven primarily by endocannabinoids, not endorphins. Um, Endorphins often require working harder, working longer, or doing something like adding a great playlist or moving with other people. So the endorphin rush that you get from exercise typically requires something other than just getting your heart rate up. But if you just get your heart rate up, you get this flood of endocannabinoids and that's the neurotransmitter that cannabis mimics. But the runner's high is not quite the same thing as getting stoned because you you tend to be more energized rather than calmer as you might from cannabis. And the, the primary effect that it has on mood is making you feel good. But the primary effect that it has on your brain is actually not just about feeling good. Endocannabinoids make us more social. And when endocannabinoid levels are higher, naturally occurring endocannabinoids, you derive more pleasure from social interactions, whether you are listening to someone tell a story or whether you are sharing a meal or whether you are cooperating or competing or playing or whatever that interaction is, endocannabinoids just make you enjoy it more. Whatever it is about human nature that allows us to enjoy one another, endocannabinoids increase that. I think this is a fascinating side effect of moderate intensity exercise. And uh, it's one of, the, I think, the least appreciated benefits of a runner's high or any sort of exercise high, that in the workout itself, you start to become more open to other people. Uh, you start to enjoy social interaction more. And it lasts when you're done exercising. It's not like the endocannabinoids disappear when you're done your workout. So you go back to your spouse, to your kids, to your workplace, to whoever, and you're a version of yourself who is going to be more present to them 
more open to them. You're going to enjoy their their stories and their jokes more. Uh, it's going to feel better to prepare a meal with them or share a meal with them. And I think this is one of the reasons why one of the strongest outcomes that you see from regular activity is people report less loneliness and report more positive relationships with other people because literally exercise primes you to be able to connect with others. It's funny because I tell my husband, if I get the chance to go work out or hit a yoga class or even run up our hill, which just right around our apartment here in LA, I come back and I tell him I'm a better mom. I'm a better wife because I'm getting the chance to do this. But I do feel so much calmer able to deal with any of the problems we have you know, for the day. But I, I also feel like hugging my husband more, sitting on the floor with Sebastian more. And I, I feel this powerful social connection with them. Not that I don't feel it when I'm not working out, but it's almost like I feel more in my body, which makes me yes. able to connect to their body, I guess. And, and you know, I just want to add sort of like proof of concept. There was a, an article I saw recently that was looking at almost non-communicative children with autism who had started to take movement classes and their parents were attending. And this child who was, I think, maybe 10 years old, in the middle of the class, the exercise class, he turned to his mom and said, I love you, mom, for the first time ever. Oh my God, I'm going to lose it. <laughs> and I, you know, as soon as I read that article, I thought, I mean, of course, there's so much going on. And there are a lot of examples like that in the science where when you see something that dramatic happen, you you understand that this is movement is powerful medicine. You know, another example like that for the book, I visited a program called Dance for Parkinson's Disease, where all the participants have some, some level of this progressive neurodegenerative disease that impairs movement and also impairs um, emotion expression and language. And over the course of a single dance class, I watched people who could barely walk in the door using their canes and their walkers stride across the dance floor with so much ease and confidence. I was able to witness one woman who had an assistant. She could not move her own body. And at the beginning of class, she looked like she wasn't even mentally present. And by the end of the class, she was able to shake people's hands and make eye contact with them that sort of no matter where people were at at that progression of that disease, a single hour of dancing to music was unlocking capacities that the disease had robbed them of. And I feel like there's a lot of examples like that, that first of all, point to the fact that you don't have to be young and fit and either physically or psychologically healthy in order to, to benefit from movement. There's something available to pretty much anyone it's a matter of finding that the thing that fits your life, what you're capable of, and what can bring you joy. And also, it's a really important reminder to the rest of us, maybe we don't see something as strikingly visible as that, as that child saying, I love you for the first time, or seeing someone who, who literally could not walk, suddenly able to walk across the floor. It may not be as dramatic to us, but I guarantee that something like that, that transformation is occurring in your own brain, in your own body. Every time you exercise, that is allowing you to be a better version of yourself. Oh, I I mean, it's it's weird, but I have this memory when Chris and I, before we got married, we got married in 2012, before 
we've been dating since 2007 and it was probably around 2008, 2009 when I had moved up from Orange County to Los Angeles to be closer in vicinity to him. And we used to go every Saturday morning. So he was in law school and then he was um, working really long hours as an attorney. But every Saturday morning, he'd give me a workout date. And workout date meant that we went to 24-hour fitness, the most luxurious gym. (laughs) But we would go to 24-hour fitness, we'd work out together and then we would go get brunch. And I have such... These, these like nostalgic memories of what a simple way to spend time together. But the conversations at the brunch, at, you know, at the brunches we had, and just even we would hold hands walking in and, and be more affectionate. And I just, it's a really special memory and time in my life of a couple of years where that was just our routine. It was a habit. It's how we started our weekend. And I do think, and you know, I'm sure you can find science to support this, but couples who work out together probably mm-hmm. stay together longer, I would assume. Yes. No, there is research. There are a couple of studies um, that I came across. One found that when couples exercise together later over the next 24 hours, both partners are more likely to say that they experience more love and they feel more supported and they feel more positive about the relationship. Also, separately, if you exercise, even not with your, your partner or your spouse or your family, if you exercise at all over the next 24 hours, you report more positive social interactions with everyone you come into contact with. So again, I think that's really good, like two ways to think about it. You can be someone who practices movement as a form of me time and you, you, know, you go for a walk on your own or you, you, know, you do your YouTube video by yourself and then you are more present for others. Or... We know that when you move with other people, it's a really great way to strengthen a relationship. But that just reminded me, I know we got off topic a little bit. I, I mentioned going for a walk outdoors and I wanted to get back to the LSD comparison. Yes. Um, so this is some really fascinating research that exercising outdoors has an effect on your brain that is unique compared to other forms of movement. Although it hasn't been studied, I would bet that some forms of mindful movement could mimic it as well. Uh, including yoga, Tai Chi, and, and swimming probably as well. Movement forms that are repetitive and really bring you into a meditative state. But that I haven't seen that studied yet. But research suggests that when you exercise outdoors, it basically shifts your brain state into what happens in people's brains when they are experienced meditators. And they enter a state of quieting down the inner chatter Quieting down, you know, the rumination, the planning, the worrying, the self-judgment. And you you enter the state of open awareness that really is about feeling your body, feeling your senses, all of your senses, your sensory awareness being heightened, and and just being present to your experience as it is, rather than having that kind of verbal commentary. It sometimes feels like a verbal assault, like your mind will never shut up. <laughs> And, um, and exercising outdoors seems to allow people to experience this without having to train in meditation for hundreds or thousands of hours, like you usually see in the, the people they put in the brain scanners and say, meditate and you get this fabulous state of, of inner calm. Um, people can experience it as soon as they go for a walk outdoors. And as long as it's an environment that they personally feel safe in and that um, has any sort of natural element, whether it's blue sky, water, trees, leaves, uh, even in the midst of winter, you can have this effect. And when you look for the, uh, the drug that it most closely mimics, 
This is the same thing that seems to happen when people take entheogens, which is that whole class of drugs that are supposed to be um, spiritual awakening experiences and, uh, and mind-altering in this way of you know, giving you access to inner truths and uh, universal sensations of love and well-being. I don't actually have any experience with entheogens. I, so I've had, I'm, this is uh, based on other people's reporting to me. Um, You're not going to do it for research, Kelly? I'm just kidding. No, I, I, <laughs> yeah, you know, I am willing to try almost every form of workout, but I'm, <laughs> I'm like slow on I that. I'll that leave that hurts. to Michael Pollan. Yeah, um, seriously. But, but what's interesting is that when people are outdoors, they often report very similar insights, experiencing a sense of oneness with the universe, realizations about their place in the universe, coming to terms with death and loss and grief. One of my favorite stories in the book was a mother who was grieving the loss of her son to cancer. And I, this stuck out to me. The reason I, I ended up wanting to interview her in depth is she said that the only time she ever was able to experience the presence of her son was when she was running and when she was running outdoors. And that's what got me so curious about what is it about moving outdoors that alters our our state of mind in such a way that that you could perceive the presence of a loved one and in a way that is real and authentic and life-sustaining. And so that's sort of what put me on the path of trying to understand what was happening to people when they are moving outdoors. And I came across so many stories of people having really profound spiritual and religious experiences outdoors. Again, I think it's, it's that idea like, you know, you push it to the extreme you get this proof of concept, which is that you know maybe you're not looking for that type of religious experience outdoors that you might experience. You go you know hiking by yourself in the Grand Canyon, but you're feeling disconnected, you're feeling distracted, you're feeling a little alienated from humanity. Go for a walk outside, you know, listen to some birds, and and get a sense, uh, you know, of feeling connected to something bigger than yourself. It is a pretty powerful thing. I think some of my favorite memories growing up were camping in parks like Yellowstone with my family because you are you are dropped into nature. It makes you realize that you are just connected to this just amazing world that is a collective energy. And it's, I mean, everything from sinking my circadian rhythm as a child and an adult to Breathing in that oxygen and moving my body outside, it's there's nothing See, like it. And you use the word realize, which is funny. That's what people often use when they talk about a spiritual experience on an entheogen drug. They say that you have this realization that you are connected to everyone and everything. And I think that that's, like, that's actually important language. It's not like an illusion. And even people who study um, the importance of spending time in nature will talk about that. The psychologists who study the importance of feeling connected to nature. I mean, they will, they will say, this is not just about feeling good. It's that you can actually realize what is already true, that you are connected, that you are part of life itself. And it's just that being in nature allows us to have, to see that part of our reality as human beings. And I feel like many different movement forms, when we get really hooked on them, it's because they are allowing us to see some reality, something that's already true, but that maybe was hard to see or feel or realize. I know that I feel that most strongly in a collective dance experience when I'm moving in synchrony with others, 
to music that is uplifting. And I feel connected to others and hopeful about life in a way that I can't access intellectually. I need to feel it in my body. And it's true. And it's, you know, that sense of being connected to others and common humanity, it's true. And I can talk to myself about it and think about it and contemplate it. But I just sense it as being true in a different way when I am dancing with others. And I think every movement form that people love, it's, it's in part because it gives you that embodied knowing of something that we really need to know or feel or sense or remember. I love it. And I feel like, you know, it, it parallels this other powerful theme you have in the book that has helped me as an entrepreneur, but also the fact that this physical activity not only makes you feel connected to everyone around you, but it helps you to think about yourself and what you're capable of doing differently. Yes. yes. Literally. Can you um, kind of explain how that works in the body and give us an example in your own life? Yeah. So one of the things that I talk about in that section in the book about how movement can redefine what feels possible or redefine how you, how you think about yourself is the idea of proprioception, which means to literally sense yourself. And proprioception is your brain's ability to sense your body moving and your body's position in space. And also, um, to some degree, to, to sense what's happening in your heart and your lungs and in your gut and in your viscera. Literally, your ability to sense your body as a part of who you are. And we know that your understanding of your sense of self is very much informed by your body. So that when you, you know, we were talking at the beginning of our conversation about those CEOs that I had do battle ropes and then do a ballet port de bras. And that was actually to explain the idea of proprioception, to say, like, do this movement. And now tell me how the movement feels and tell me how you feel about yourself. When you elongate your joints, your brain senses that elongation, maybe senses the fluidity of the movement of your arm, and it literally senses gracefulness. And the brain interprets it as, I am graceful. Whereas if you have something heavy in your arms and you throw it or you catch something heavy, right, your, your muscles will register that, that tension, that force on your tendons, the, the quick change in the length of your muscles. And your brain will receive that information and not only think, I just threw something with power. Your brain just, it's a shortcut. Your brain thinks, I'm powerful. And it's, it's just, it's visceral. You don't need to tell yourself a story about it. Um, you will sense your own power. You will sense your own strength. You will sense your own grace, your freedom, your beauty, whatever the quality of the movement is. And so I talked to so many people for the book who had a form of movement that when they were at a difficult part of time in their life, a difficult transition, uncertainty about their future, maybe dealing with a crisis, and they did something physical that they'd never done before, like um, set a personal best in powerlifting. Or one woman, she um, went from forearm plank to hands on the ground plank without putting her knees on the floor for the first time and, and had this visceral sense of, I thought I knew what I was capable of. I have no idea what I'm capable of because I just did something I never thought I could do. Um, in my own life, one of one of my most memorable experiences of that was a yoga pose. And maybe you know it. It's called King Pigeon Pose. And it's from the Ashtanga Vinyasa um, series two, mm -hmm. where you start on your knees, uh, you're standing on your knees, 
And you lower slowly onto the crown of your head without dropping your hips or your, your shoulders. So you end up just balancing on the back of your head. And it's a really hard thing to do. And if you don't do it with tremendous control and strength, you basically wipe out and you will slam on your back and like have the wind knocked out of you. You'll land on your head and it's very painful. And I remember being scared of that movement because I like to be in control and I like to, to know everything that's happening. And this is literally a blind landing. It's like a trust fall. Like if, you know, where you stand and you fall backwards and people catch you. Mm-hmm. Except in that particular yoga pose, you are the one who catches you. Like you have to trust yourself. And it took me at least a year to be able to do that pose. And I distinctly remember the first time that I did it without a partner assist. And I landed on my head, even though I couldn't see where I was going. And I felt free in that moment. Like, I'm not sure I know who I am because I felt brave. It was a backbend. So my heart was physically open. And I had this sense that I could trust myself in a very deep way. And uh, I think that's one of the reasons why yoga is so powerful, by the way. Like, almost any yoga pose you can think of has some emotional quality to it as well, whether it's surrender or stability or grace or fearlessness. And uh, you can really form relationships with poses over time. But that was one of my experiences. Have you had an experience like that? Yeah, I would say that I never thought that I could run a half marathon or a marathon. Mm -hmm. And I had sort of talked myself into believing that it was really hard on the body and I didn't want to be a long distance runner. And my little sister lived in San Francisco. I ended up working with the Nike half marathon team, the women here in Los Angeles that were going up to LA. I was helping them with their nutrition. And the coach, the Nike coach Blue said, you know, I can snag you and a guest a spot to run. And my sister, I knew my sister had always wanted to run. So at first I was like, I'm not going to do this. But it's a once in a lifetime opportunity. And people try for a number of years to get a ticket to be able to run this half marathon. So I said, what the heck, I'll do it and I'll train. And runner's high, like... Not only did I feel that runner's high, I felt like for days, but it was crossing the finish line of that race with my sister. Not only did I feel closer to her, but it was the first time in our adult life that we were doing something together that was really hard for us. And where at certain points in the race, we were pushing each other. And then at the end, it completely redefined how I felt about running, which in my brain, what I was capable of that it wasn't breaking me down. It was making me feel strong. And uh, it really opened me up and my heart and my mind to to doing long distance running. Um, I have yet to run a marathon, but I'm open to it now where I wasn't before. That is such an amazing story. And can I... I just want to appreciate two aspects of, of that story. One is this idea that you can have, you can have a story in your mind that something is maybe too hard, too difficult, that it's not going to be good for me to go through that challenge of it. And that sort of redefining what running could be, you can imagine how the next time you're at a point in your life and it's a professional opportunity or a relationship challenge, some new role that you have to step into. And there's a voice in your head that says, that's it. This is going to be too much for me. It's too stressful. It's too hard. This is going to to just destroy me. 
And you could have a, a memory, even if it's not conscious, that there was a time when there was something else you thought was going to be only stressful in a negative way. And yet you experienced that it could be strengthening and it could be rewarding and that you were capable of that. I think that's one of the reasons why people like to train for things like a marathon is you, you get to experience yourself as someone who can do really hard things and persist even when there's a voice that says, I need to stop. And um, that it can have meaning, that it's not just something that is, um, is draining. The other thing is that you mentioned doing it with your sister. And um, one of the things that surprised me the most... So the last chapter of the book is about ultra endurance um, sports. And I almost didn't even write about it because it's so different from my own mentality. I like get scared when I think about people running hundreds of miles and pushing the absolute limits of what the the human body can endure. So it took me years of actually talking to people and watching what happened unfolded at these events to, to really understand the enormous psychological value of it. And it doesn't mean I'm signing up for it yet because I have not. I mean, I can barely run around the block. So I'm not going to be running an ultra marathon anytime soon. But now I, I finally understand the many different reasons that this could be extremely valuable and meaningful. And one of the things that jumped out to me was... Um, the difference between, for, for many of these athletes, the difference between an ultra marathon or any ultra endurance event versus shorter races is that during shorter races, sometimes they'd gotten so fit that it just felt like other people were in the way. Like, get out of my way. This is my race course. I'm going for my best time. And I, I like, why are you here? They had that, that sort of experience with other human beings in shorter races. But with an ultra endurance event, it's so hard. You are just glad that there are other people suffering with you. You will need their help at some point on the run. You cannot do it by yourself. And you will have an opportunity to help others physically and moral support. And that what these athletes were telling me is their, their experience of their relationship to other people is what's sort of the... It's not even how hard the event is physically. It's it requires you to be a different version of yourself one who is willing to accept help, one who acknowledges your vulnerability, even as you are demonstrating your enormous inner strength by keeping going, but not doing it alone. And I, I found that so fascinating. So you had that experience right in your first half marathon. I think many of us experience that. And I, I think not a lot of ultra endurance athletes will tell you this, but I think that one of the reasons they keep going longer and harder and in crazier environments is because they're not just looking for that experience of, can I physically do it? But that, that camaraderie that comes about when they're still doing something so hard that they can't do it alone. I mean, I'm sure researching and writing this book, I mean, you've always been an exercise enthusiast. I, I know in the beginning of the book, you talk about how you were auditioning to teach, become an instructor. And it sounds like that you've had years of experience doing that. But how has writing this book changed how you exercise today? You know, I don't know that it has changed so much how I exercise as it has changed how I teach. And the, the thing that really stood out to me about this book was the incredible social belonging that people experience in their movement communities. I heard from so many people, every type of movement you can imagine from people on a rowing team to people you know, doing CrossFit, to people in running clubs, people in dance classes. 
talking about how you know they they enjoyed their movement community, but then a crisis would hit, and their movement community became a source of support in small but really meaningful ways. And I just heard that over and over so much that I decided to pay more attention to that in how I teach. And I I teach um, right now six dance fitness classes a week. And I've always tried to create community wherever I teach. But I just, I've been going more out of my way to say, start a little bit late so that people have to talk with one, with one another more. Make sure to introduce people when somebody's new to make sure that they meet new people in the class to if somebody brings a family member or a friend to really like hype that up and celebrate it. And over the, the years that I was researching the book and, and now since I started making that more a focus of my teaching, I've really seen the, the fruit blossom from that effort and seeing people in my classes deal with, um, for example, the loss of a spouse or going through cancer treatment. And that somehow we've created a community where they can continue to show up that they can, they don't have to put on a certain face that they might have to for their own family or at the workplace. They don't have to be strong or happy in a particular way. They can be their full selves and also experience the joy of connection and movement. And I now view that as probably the, you know, the most important thing that I'm doing in offering these classes is creating a, a place where people can come and experience joys that, that can sometimes feel really unavailable when you're in the middle of a crisis or you're recovering from a loss. And there's something about moving together that makes this possible in a way that, that I haven't experienced anywhere else. So I'm so grateful to understand the science of it a little bit better now so that I can be more strategic and, uh, and fulfill that role in my own teaching. I see that you're doing it in your classes and you're also doing it in this new book that's coming out, The Joy of Movement. And I just love so much that you're focusing on the psychological and community benefits of exercise instead of weight loss. Yes. I think it's I think it's a beautiful reminder that you know these bodies are vehicles for this journey and it's a journey and not a destination and most of all we're we're in this together. And those connections can be life-altering. Yes. So, and all of the joys of movement that we've talked about, whether it's helping people deal with depression, making your brain more responsive to joy, helping you connect with others, um, having your mind altered by being out in nature, all of those things that we talked about, the research is clear. They are independent. They do not require any type of weight or weight loss. They are the benefits of moving your body and you don't have to fix your body or look a certain way or burn a certain number of calories in order to realize these benefits. And, and that's why I really, I don't, I want to, you know, leave that conversation to other people and really focus on what is available to us as soon as we begin to move our bodies. Wow, Kelly. Well, thank you so, so much for sharing this information with my audience I love that you are about nourishing your body with exercise, nourishing your brain with exercise, connecting with other people with exercise. I remember in your talk up in San Francisco, you mentioned that it was, what, three minutes of exercise that we start to see these chemical benefits in the brain? Yes. And only because that's the shortest dose that anyone has studied. Do I think it actually takes three minutes? Probably not. But that's the shortest dose I could find in a published study. I love it. Well, I love to leave my community with one final question. And that would be, I'm 
going to guess that I know the answer. What one thing would you do every day to change the wellness of your life? Well, okay. So yeah. So I guess movement is kind of obvious. So um, <laughs> let me give you the other thing that has enhanced my psychological well-being my entire life. And that is I have two rescue cats. And I, I do really believe that having an animal in your life, and particularly if you rescue an animal who needs a home, that that has tremendous psychological benefits as well. You heard it here first, guys. Move your body for three minutes and get to and a go adopt an animal and adopt an animal. Yes. <laughs> Oh, well, it was such a pleasure to have you on the show. I'm going to share links to pre-order your book or if, I guess it'll be out. It's, it's out now. January. So it's out. So go order it now. We'll do um, swipe ups for people to snag it on Amazon. I'm sure it's at where all books are sold. But where can people find you online? Where are you sharing all of this juicy information every day? Yeah. So you can find me at kellymcgonigal.com. And for January and February, I'm going to be doing some virtual book clubs on Facebook Live. And you can again find me on all the social media channels, but my home base is it's just my name, Kelly McGonigal. Wow. Thanks, Kelly. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Uh, it was an absolute pleasure. And we will make sure that everyone in the Be Well by Kelly community has access to you. So thanks for being here. Thank you for listening to Be Well by Kelly. Please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Learn more at bewellbykelly.com and follow me on Instagram at bewellbykelly. I would love if you picked up my books, Body Love and Body Love Every Day. They're sold on Amazon and at all major booksellers. 